It's just such a joy to be able to sing to the Lord together and celebrate again what God has been doing and what He is going to do. And what we do on these Friday nights is we have Bible study. For those who are here for the first time, welcome. I know that there are many new faces. God bless you. Uh, we, we go through just different books sometimes and topics as well. And we've been t- talking about the person of Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah lately. But considering this weekend, considering that this is a weekend of celebration, we're going to pause on that. And we're going to discuss something else. Uh, a short, perhaps, reflection, message, something that would stir us as we, uh, again, reflect upon the goodness of God. And so we're going to pray in a moment. And ask God to do that, to give us the eyes to see, give us the hearts to receive. And I want to say this one more thing before we start. No matter how you came in tonight, we serve a living God. And this God has the power to change your life. He's a God that can forgive any sin. He's a God that can heal any disease. He's a God that brings back, no matter who or what you've done, or how far you've walked away. Consider that throughout this night. And realize that as we are about to pray, He hears us. And He hears your heart, and He knows your need more than you know it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together in this place. And Lord, we trust that you have something for us. But Lord, we come to give you something as well. We give you our attention. We give you our affection. We give you a willingness to obey. And Lord, we know that we need your help even in that. So Lord, in this moment, would you give us the minds that are free from distraction and hearts that are free from any stubbornness to simply hear your voice And we ask by your power that you would make every person disappear except for the man, the God-man Christ Jesus. And may he be loved and adored and cherished by every heart, whether for the seasoned believer or for the one who has not yet believed, may today bring about a fresh sense of adoration towards the master. So Lord, we just ask even now that you would have your way in this meeting. And Lord, even from now, we say thank you, and we give you all the glory for the things that are going to come about from this time together. We give you all the praise and recognition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There was a man who uh, felt the urge and the desire to take it upon himself to study the major religions of the world and to just discover what people are dedicating their lives to from different areas in the world and different backgrounds and as he would go to different leaders of different faiths he finally came to a Christian leader and he asked for a Bible and when he took that Bible he read it cover to cover and he read it with detail and he read it with great desire to really find out what believers believe and after some time he reunited with this Christian leader again And the man was curious to find out what this skeptic, what this searcher for truth discovered about the Word of God. And what was the most amazing, astounding thing that he found out of the Scriptures. And as he asked that, what what was the thing that popped out of the book for you the most? What was the thing that you felt like was the most intriguing concerning the Christian faith? He didn't hesitate. And 
the Christian leader, the, the minister, surely thought that this person would have said something about the crucifixion. Would have said something about the incarnation, how God took on flesh. Would have said something about the resurrection. Would have said something about eternal life. And those are all glorious things. But this man, without skipping a beat, said, you know, the thing that blew my mind the most about what you believe is that you Christians claim through your book that your God lives inside of you. Now, I've studied all these different religions, and I realize that they go to a place to, to seek God, or they, they believe that there are a plethora of different gods, but you claim that your God takes up residence inside of you. The Christian leader was startled. And it is an amazing thing to believe. That the Bible says about believers that we are known as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That as individual Christians, we are the very habitation of God to some degree. That God comes in and he takes up our hearts as his abode. And this is a marvelous truth because Paul continually uses this language. The New Testament continually uses this imagery of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, borrowing it from the Old Testament, where in the Old Covenant, before the New Covenant was established, you had people, the people of God, going to a specific location on different pilgrimages and different feasts and different times of the year to meet with God, where God would manifest His glory and His power. And then the New Testament's like, oh, no, no, no. It's not about where you go. Now it's God goes where you go. And he takes up residence in your life and he walks with you and he talks with you and he, he, he lives with you. Now that's true for the individual believer that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. But it's also true in the corporate sense that as we come together, we make up what is known as the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 2.22. That being built up together for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's exciting. That's a wonderful thing. And we have permission to some degree to go to the Old Testament and, and take some insights about how the temple of the Holy Spirit operate, the temple of God, in the physical sense. And the lessons and principles that we can bring to the spiritual sense that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit corporately. And that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on a specific theme in the scriptures about being the temple of the Holy Spirit, but going to the Old Testament to pull out truths for us in the New Covenant. In the new covenant sense. I mean, we see this throughout the Bible. We, we look at the attention that the Bible gives to, to this structure known as the temple. In the book of Exodus, it was known as the tabernacle. We went through that together as a series on Friday nights. And we see that half of the book of Exodus is dedicated to building the thing. I mean, God could have just said he gave a blueprint for a building and now he manifested his glory. No, let's get every instruction in there about every piece of furniture, the length, the color, the material for an exhaustive 20 chapters. And there are specific lessons just in those instructions alone. But here's one principle. Here's an example of how we can draw principles in the New Testament sense. You go, why does God give so much attention to detail? Because God is a God of detail. And the same attention that he gave to the detail of that physical structure to make sure that it was exactly what he wanted it to be for his glory to manifest and for him to be comfortable, so to speak, in his own house. Likewise, in the New Testament, 
God cares about every detail of your life and mine. And he longs for every element and fabric of our being to be sanctified so that his spirit would be comfortable and he would manifest his glory through us. So that's just like an overview lesson. We see this time and time again, and and this is what we're going to do. At one point, the tabernacle, this tent portable thing, was now in transition to become something that would be permanent in the land of Israel known as the temple. So you had the tabernacle, it was a tent, but now it was coming to a place where it would be a permanent building for quite some time. But the transition from that tabernacle to that temple was based upon a condition. There was a condition that needed to be met in order for that thing to be known as a permanent place. And I think it's just fitting that as we celebrate, we're celebrating God doing something in a transitional sense. God has been doing something here in this body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we long to see more of God's glory, it's based upon a condition. Different conditions. It's not haphazard. It's not random. It's not something that's just going to happen because it's going to happen. There's some lessons that we should learn and it should stir our hearts to believe God for more. Because here's what we love about the temple of the the Old Testament, do we not? The, the, the stories of how the glory of God would fill that house. And it was so powerful that the ministers couldn't even go in and do what they needed to do. Let's go there together in Second Chronicles, the Old Testament. Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Chronicles 7, 1. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, we know what that looks like in the Old Testament. It was physical manifestation. You're talking about fire coming from heaven. You're talking about a weighty sense of the majesty and the holiness of God that would almost paralyze you in fear and in wonder. That's what they experienced. Now, I don't know what that exactly looks like in the new covenant. All I know is that I really want it. Whatever the glory of the Lord looks like in the new temple of the Holy Spirit being this corporate body, we should strive for that. We should long for that. We we should want God to so manifest His power So make himself known. So make his son clear to the minds of those that are clouded in their understanding of his beauty and his majesty and his compassion. We should desire, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, that even a non-believer can walk into an environment just like this and the Spirit of God be so powerful and so obvious that he would fall on his knees and say, Surely God is among you as a result of the conviction of sin in his life. We should believe for that. As one preacher said it, there should be no dead services with a living Christ. Does that make sense? And this is the object of our prayer and our desire that, Lord, whenever we come together and your word is open, and whenever we even fellowship and whenever we sing to you, oh, Lord, as we exalt the name of Jesus, would he walk in the midst and make himself known? Now, for this verse to come about, again, did not just happen. There was a foundation that was laid. For the glory of the Lord to be known in such a way, it did not just graciously come down from heaven, though it is an act of grace. 
there were conditions that needed to be met. And it was upon the people to say, do we really want the glory of God enough? Do we so hunger for God to make himself real in our midst? To be willing to meet these conditions that he has set for us? And there are some principles, and for us to go to those principles, we got to go to the beginning. So turn your Bibles in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. Now here's the background to the story. King David was king. He was a good king. He made some mistakes. And at this point, he made a mistake. He took a census where he numbered the people of Israel. And someone argue it was an act of pride to flex his military muscle. And there's even deeper insight to that. And we won't get into it. Where he counts the number of people and he does so in a way where he broke God's law in doing so. Because he didn't do it the way God told him to do it. And when he went to that extent... God came in judgment and discipline to bring about a plague. And it killed thousands of Israelites. And David was broken that his act of sin brought about consequences to others because that's what sin does. Sin does not just stay with you. Sin will affect other people as much as you want to try to contain it. And so what he, what he does is he pleads and he cries out to God and he gets instruction. Go to this specific threshing floor. Go to this specific place. And I want you to build an altar. And when you build an altar there, and you make a sacrifice, I will answer. And I will stop this pestilence. So he does it. He makes this sacrifice, and guess what happens? God responds, and then David makes this incredible statement. It just seems like it's random. You would think the story would end. The plague's over. Let's move on to the next chapter. No. David gets a revelation. David comes to a place where he goes, oh, this is, this is serious. This is wonderful. This is, I got something out of this. And this is what he says in 2 Chronicles, rather 1 Chronicles 22.1. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. It was not there at all. It was in his respective place, in a different part of Israel. But after this, he goes, hold on. This is where we're going to build God's temple. This is where we're going to do it. You think... How did he come to that conclusion out of all of this? Well, God surely revealed it to him. And it was based on what we see here early on in verse 26. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then he goes, okay, surely God wants to consume his sacrifices in this place. Surely this is exactly where God wants to make his temple built and permanent. And I think there's something deeper than that, though. Because you don't read till later on exactly where this place is. You don't have to turn there, but when you go to 2 Chronicles 3.1, you realize that when Solomon begins to build the temple, David's son, Solomon, who gets the instructions to build the temple, just hear this, look at this, it's going to ring familiar. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Does anybody know where this rings from? Exactly. The first place where Mount Moriah is mentioned is back in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And we read this, and I'll read it again. It says, the Lord spoke to him in verse 2, and he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And some would argue that Mount Moriah was even the location where Christ himself was crucified in that general area. Now that's up for debate. But what we have in scripture recorded, clear cut, is that Mount Moriah was a place where Abraham made a sacrifice. And where David made a sacrifice. And I think that the location where God wanted to build this house is not just by happenstance. That there is a theme behind Mount Moriah. There, there is this understanding of what this place symbolizes that is crucial to seeing how God wanted to build his house. And where God wanted to build his house. The, the two stories that we get in scripture present a clear theme of an attitude of sacrifice. An attitude of selflessness. An attitude of, I'm willing to do whatever it costs me to do to please God. Is that not true? Did we not see that in Genesis 22? Genesis 22, two, he says, Take up your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And Abraham does it. He comes to the point where he actually lifts up the knife and is ready to pierce through his son. And the angel of the Lord comes in, in verse 16. And let's put that up and see how the angel of the Lord responds to this man's willingness to sacrifice. The very thing that he was waiting God for, for a big portion of his life. God, you promised me a son. You promised me this deep desire that I want some descendants here. I really want this. And now when he comes and he's enjoying it, God comes and brings a test. And when he comes to the test and he passed the test, look at what the angel of the Lord says. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now we've been through this before, so this is just maybe a reminder for a lot of us. What's the difference between what the angel of the Lord said before and what God said rather in verse 2? Whom you love. In Genesis 22, 2, he says, go take up your son, your only son, whom you love. Now when he was willing to sacrifice it, he repeats himself, but he doesn't include whom you love. Because he realized that he loved God more than Isaac. He realized that he loved the giver more than the gift. He realized that he was willing to take the very thing that he cherished the most. That he waited so long for. That he was, he was just on the edge of his seat day by day. Hoping that this would come to pass. As his body was getting older and his wife was getting older. And God realized the very thing that you love so much. You've proven that you love me more. Sacrifice. And then you fast forward to this clear scene here in First Chronicles 21. And the man, Ornan, who owned the area, he says, take it. You can take the land for free. You don't have to pay anything for it. Whatever you need to do, you do it. And David says this famous phrase. We've heard it before. Look what he says. No, in verse 25, 24 rather, but I will buy them for the full price I will not take the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I'm not interested in worshiping God in a way that it does not cost me anything. I'm not interested in my relationship with the Lord being something of which does not require me to make some kind of selfless, Lifestyle. No, I'm not interested in that. I want to give whatever I can give to him. 
And it is an honor and privilege to do so. And I find it fascinating that it is this place, Mount Moriah, where God wanted to establish his house. God wanted to build his house on the foundation of an attitude of sacrifice. And that's foundational for this house and for whatever house you represent. That as we come together as a body, as we desire, I hope it's our desire to build God's kingdom and advance it through our lives, as a spiritual house, we will not see anything of the glory of God if we're not going to first lay the foundation of sacrifice. Whatever it costs me, Lord, to see your glory, I'm willing to pay the price from my end. And that's important for us in our day because we live in a very consumeristic mentality and society. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. It's almost an offense now to ask somebody to do something if they're not going to get anything in return. And unfortunately, that kind of attitude and mentality has crept into the Western church where we've made this more about a consumer experience than about a place of sacrifice. About a place of how can I give. It's not about how can I give, it's what can I get. What can I experience? How does this tickle me in a certain way? And how does this stir me in that way? And it's not about what can I do to contribute to the glory of God. And it would be totally unfair to say that all our churches have people that don't, a majority of our churches are not sacrificial people. No, a church, it cannot exist unless there are people that are sacrificial. But usually, if we're honest with ourselves, you get a handful of people that sacrifice. A handful of people that give so much and then the rest living off of their sacrifice and not giving anything of their own. And if, I love what David says to the man that offered his land freely. Look what he says. He says, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. I'm not going to take what belongs to you and make it mine and give it to God. Do you see? I'm not going to ride off of your sacrifice. I'm not going to ride off of your service. I'm not going to ride off of your ministry, though we are blessed by one another's ministry. I'm going to give whatever I need to give to contribute to this. So let me pay and let me offer something to the Lord. That's a beautiful way of thinking because David was obsessed with the glory of God. David was totally consumed. Though he was a man of great exploits and great experiences, there was one thing that he desired above every other thing, that he would, he would dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty, to inquire in his temple. And he came to a point in his life where he says, even early on, he goes, I'm paraphrasing here, how is it that I live in a palace and God's living in a tent? How does that work? Let's put up Psalms 132. It goes even deeper than that. He, he had a concern. How do I live in this amazing house and God's out there somewhere in a tent? It can't be. We got to do something about this. Do you think it was just a concern that he had once? No, it was the thing that kept him up at night. We can go to verse 3, verse 2 rather. How he swore, speaking about David, the psalmist speaking about David, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Look what David says. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
I don't want to live in a state of comfort until I know that God is comfortable, so to speak. Until God has his rightful place in my day, whatever power that I have to make it so, I will make it so. This is what consumed a man. What's amazing about David is that he had gold, he had armies, he had women, he had all these things. He he had everything, yet this is the thing that kept him up at night. This is the drive of his life. How can I build God's house? How can I invest in making his glory known to my generation? He was a man of sacrifice. And he lived a huge portion of his life preparing for his son to build the temple. Because this is what he lived for. Now what's amazing is, compare this, you can turn there if you want. Compare this attitude that David had. And you read through your Old Testament, you come to a small book called Haggai. And you go to chapter 1. And you realize that the people of God have come to a place where the temple was destroyed and needed to be rebuilt. Because they were in exile. Coming back, the temple was destroyed. It needed to be rebuilt. And God brought an indictment. And God brought a rebuke in Haggai chapter 1 verse 3. And he speaks through a prophet. And he says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the word panel there is to say decorated. It's to speak of something that was, uh, something that was given investment into to make it to be elaborate and beautiful. And he goes, is that the time right now for you to invest in your own house and your own comfort? And is God against those things? No, but compared to where the house of God was, he goes, in verse 4, is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your panel house while this lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He just says, I want you to think about your ways now. I want you to look into your priorities in life. I want you to see where you have placed God's house in the list of your ambitions. Where does it lie? God's not against doing things. God is not against uh, having enjoyment in life and and, and doing things for your house that's not what he's saying it's all about priority it's all about priority and what I find amazing is that you had these people in the book of Haggai that were striving so hard to build for the house because they were gone for so long so they wanted to just get to a new place in life as they were coming back to Israel and in comparison to David who had everything he goes This is the one thing I live for. Let me just make this very clear to anybody here that has ambitions in life that is not centered around the glory of God. If you even get close to where David gets, you'll realize that it will not satisfy. I guarantee it. I promise you, according to this word, that if you're trying to build something, your own empire, your own idea of what your existence should be about, and it does not center around the person of Christ and the gospel and fulfilling the will of God, you will be disappointed. Learn from David who had it all and yet said the most satisfying thing in my life is to know that God is satisfied. Is that he is pleased and that he is honored and he is glorified through my life. See, David was a man who initiated this sacrifice to build God's house. But it takes a people to maintain the house of God. And so you read later on, we don't have to turn there, where a man named Shelomath, like who's Shelomath? 
He was called to literally maintain the gifts that were dedicated to make sure that the house of God would remain as it was. And then there's a list in Chronicles where you see these different people that dedicated their gifts. And you had even guys like Samuel the seer, Saul, Joab, all these people. Nobody was excluded and dedicated something. And the verse says there in Chronicles, for the maintenance of the house of the Lord. And that was true for Solomon. Solomon was instructed to be the person that would bring about this house to be built. But look what he says here. Look what David says. As you read here in 1 Chronicles. In verse 17 of chapter 22. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son. So it was a community thing. Let's do this together. Let's build God's house together. But it has to be laid upon a foundation of sacrifice. Of sacrifice. And this is a beautiful thing. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the New Testament with a man named Timothy. Where Paul gives a description about this person, this minister, this young man. And look what he says in Philippians 2.20. We're going to read it on the screen. Philippians 2.20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now look what he says in verse 21. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I read that verse the other day and I thought to myself, Lord, in my list of interests in life, is there anything in there that includes the interest of Jesus? Think about it. As we sit here tonight, scan through our hearts and ask all the interests I have, all my ambitions, my goals, anything in there? that would be parallel to the interests that are found in this word concerning the heart of God? I think what we do, though, with our relationship with Christ is we try to get him interested in our interest. And we try to convince him about our own will. And we, like Joseph, when Jacob was blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, had his hands placed in a certain way, and Joseph said, no, 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 do it this way. That's what we try to do with God's hands. We say, no, 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 bless this, God. And God says, no, I have a different way. I have a different plan in mind. I want to bless it this way. No, 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 Lord, bless it this way. We try to grab his hands in prayer and we fast. And we do. And God says, I'm trying to mold you into my will. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to bring you into the place where I want you to be. I want to get my interest into your veins. So it's not just a duty, but it's actually a delight. It's not just what you need to do. It's something that you get to do. It's not just a list. It's your very food. As Jesus says, it's my food to do the will of my Father. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. We can know this, that the idea of God's glory being known will not even be a hint of a reality if it's not built upon a foundation like it was in Mount Moriah, sacrifice. Lord, what am I willing to give Lord, show me what to give. This isn't, a, this isn't about money. This is about giving whatever God wants for me to invest in his house. The spiritual body of Christ being built up to see God's glory manifest. So it was built upon the foundation of sacrifice. But it wasn't just that. It was built through a certain type of people with a certain type of mindset. Who built God's house in this context? Was it David? It was Solomon. 
Have we ever wondered why? David was the one that stayed up all night. David was the one that was going crazy about the idea of God having a dwelling place permanently, so glorious and so majestic. David was known as a man after God's own heart. Surely, Lord, if you gave this man the blueprint, you're going to give him the privilege of seeing it come to pass. And God says, as much as this man was after my own heart, and as much as he was a person that desired for me to make my glory known, there is something about him that disqualified him from having that opportunity. Does anybody know what it was? It says in chapter 22, verse 7. Look at there in chapter 22, verse 7 of 1 Chronicles. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Now what's amazing there is that this isn't speaking about God being unforgiving. There's a principle here. There's a lesson here. Concerning God's house being built and the type of people that God wants to see build it. There was qualifications. David did not meet those qualifications. His history and his reputation had too much stain on it to be associated with something as holy as the temple of the Lord. And so he says, you're going to give it to your son. Now, that's, that's amazing because when you go to 1 Timothy 3, you don't have to turn there. When there's qualifications for leaders, it says that they shouldn't be quarrelsome, verse 3. They shouldn't be violent, but gentle. So the same qualifications to some degree for leadership and for those that are investing in building God's house, it has to be met by God's standard. So it goes to Solomon. Now what's amazing is Solomon, his very name means peace. His very name means peace. And this is what God says right here. He says it in the verse right after, in verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. God's house must be built upon the foundation of sacrifice, but it also, secondly, must be built through a people of peace. God's house, God's temple, cannot reach a place where his glory is manifested if it is being occupied by people of war that enjoy shedding blood or who find no problem whipping each other, cutting each other, tearing each other. The Lord has a standard. And he says, my house shall be house, a house of peace, and it requires a people of peace to do it. And I thought to myself, well, in the Old Testament, there's that picture of actual war and actual fighting and actual bloodshed. In the New Testament, it uses that language, but with different weapons. Stuff like the tongue. Stuff like a heart posture. And you see it in the Old Testament too that, that reflects it. But it makes us think. You know, First Peter says that we are being like living stones built up together. Each one of us, living stones. And we're being built up together as a spiritual house. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And you have the apostles and the prophets as the foundation and Christ as the cornerstone. Like we're all connected. And we need each other. 
to build this house for God's glory to be known. And I think when we come to the place where we allow ourselves without a repentant heart and without an awareness of what our actions can do, like gossip, like lying, like slander, uh, unforgiveness, envy, jealousy, strife, these things, as one stone is connected to the other, we're not only not building God's house, we're actually destroying God's house. Think about that. So you have a verse like Proverbs 16, a verse 28 that says something so powerful, just, just from the tongue. And think about it in light of the spiritual house as a temple where God gives a certain standard. I need a people of peace that are willing to maintain peace so that we can do this. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisper separates close friends. Think about that. All it takes is a whisper. And the closest of friends can be separated. And that's deeper. It's not just about friendships not being friends anymore. Think about it in light of God's house being built. We have these spiritual stones that God is trying to bring in harmony and unity. And all it takes is a whisper. And those stones can be separated. And there's a gap. And another stone is removed. And there's a hole. Another stone is cracked. And this is so serious to God. I mean, we think about the physical temple. We think about God's actual temple with the gold and the imagery and everything else. Could you imagine somebody going up there and spraying graffiti on it? We'd be like, that's blasphemy, lack of reverence. There's no sense of awe. What are you doing? But we don't think that way about the spiritual house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we don't see the damage that we can do. We don't see how holy this is. And perhaps because we've been so convinced that we need to see something, that we need to see gold and shrines and stuff like that, and God's trying to switch our perspective. You know what's beautiful in the New Covenant sense? you got people from different tribes, background, tongues, age groups, educational, and we're being built together, unified, loving Jesus and worshiping with everything in our hearts. That's more beautiful than a building of gold. And Paul gives warning. Paul gives warning in a profound way in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple? Don't you know that God lives inside of you? And he's not talking individually. He's talking about the house. He's talking about the Corinthian church. He goes, do you not realize that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? Now look at, this is weighty. This is heavy. This is, we're not, we're not in the Old Testament. I'm in 1 Corinthians. You would think you would read this something in 1 Chronicles. No. Verse 17, look what Paul says in the Spirit. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We're not talking what Solomon built on Mount Moriah. We're talking about Friday night Bible study. This is holy. This is weighty. This is serious. And God, through Paul, in the Spirit, says, you know, this is so sacred to me, Corinthian church. If there's anybody in your midst that has it in their heart to destroy this temple, I'm going to destroy him. Amen. I'm just reading Bible. 
Now, what did the Corinthian church deserve by hearing this? What were the actions? Was it graffiti in the church building? Was it stealing from the offering plate? What was it? Well, well, well you just we have to read the context and go back to verse 3 and see what Paul was rebuking them for. He's saying, for you are still of the flesh, for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? It's in that same chapter where he says, let nobody destroy God's temple. Because those things bring division. Those things remove stones from their place. Those things cut and disunify what God wants to build together so that the glory of God can be displayed. And so the Lord speaks to David says, as much as you have a heart to serve and all these wonderful things, I need a person of peace. I need somebody that's willing to put down their weapons and be at rest. Let's make it new covenant. I need a person that's willing to forgive. I need a person that's willing to confront for the sake of reconciliation. I need a person that's willing, like the Bible says so many times, to use their mouth to build up and not to tear down. Because I'm trying to build something here. And requires a people of peace. Again, it wasn't just Solomon. He says to the rest of the leaders, do this together. He says to the rest of the people, do this together. It doesn't work when there's just a few people of peace. Everybody needs to be on board to say, we're willing. We're willing to put down our pride We're willing to put down our selfish ambition. We're willing to put down our insecurities to say that there's something greater than even those things in my heart. It's God's glory. And I want to invest in it, not take away from it. It's so serious to God that when you go to the seven things that God hates in Proverbs 6, one of them is when somebody comes and sows discord among the brethren. Why? Because he's trying to build something. And that's tampering with what he wants to build. Sounds easier said than done, huh? Built upon a foundation of sacrifice and built through a people of peace, yet there's still one more element that is crucial. And I would say that if this element is not included in the equation of building God's house, the other two will not be very long-lived. It won't be. You won't have much sacrifice, maybe in the beginning after a conference where everybody's excited, Maybe for some time you will have peace until selfish ambition creeps in again. But there's this thing. If this is the glue, if this is the very thing that is, is just central, then those things we can, by God's grace, rest assured, will continue to move on. Not only move on, but be strengthened. Why did David want to build the temple? What was his ambition? What was his drive? What was the motivating factor for Solomon after David would pass on from this earth for the next generation to say, let's do this. Let's build this. Whatever it takes, sacrifice, peace, let's do it all. Well, he says it in verse 19 of chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles. Look what he says. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God So that, here's the reason, so that, the reason why we want to build this house, 
so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. David wanted the glory of God to be known. David wanted the presence of God to be manifest. David wanted people to realize that there is a living God who can change lives. And he was stirring the people to pursue the very same thing. And let's make it local. If it is not our desire to make God known, if it's not our desire to make his word central and his will declared and described, if it's not our desire to see God make his son clear and the savior of those who would hear of the good news of Jesus Christ, we will open ourselves to many dangers beyond measure. If that's not central. I mean, if, if this or anything else is outside of that main purpose, what are we doing? What is it all about? David says, I want to see the glory of God known. I want to see the presence of God that's represented in that ark to pour out its fullest potential in our day. And the people are like, we're in. We're in. And if it's not for God, if it's not for his will, if it's not for his glory, do you see how he can open it up to many crazy things in this life? And here's the proof of that. Before there was a David, there was a Saul. And Saul's reign was a train wreck. I mean, he started out good, but then it didn't take very long before he invited all this craziness, not only into his life, into his family life, into his ministry, into his future. And you think to yourself, why why didn't Saul have it in his heart to build God's house? Why wasn't Saul a participant? Why wasn't Saul an initiator in seeing God do something wonderful in his reign? Because Saul was way more consumed with his position than with God's presence. Way more consumed. So caught up in self. So caught up in his own name being recognized and praised. So caught up in his popularity and the praise of others. That he completely missed the opportunity for that Ark of the Covenant. Signifying God's presence. Signifying God's name to being lifted up. And David says something tragic when he becomes king. The moment David was anointed Israel, you know what his first goal was? Let's get the ark. Listen to this. This is powerful. He says in verse 3 of chapter 13 of 1 Chronicles, when he's trying to tell the people, hey guys, are you guys convinced? Can we go get the ark of the covenant? Can we do something with the presence of God? He says, then let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. What a depressing statement to say about somebody who had the opportunity to do something with the glory of God but was so consumed with self that he missed it. Now here's my point. How many people in different places around within the church setting are living like Saul? Trying to pursue something even in light of ministry to get their name known to get the praises of others, to get the recognition of other fellow people. To the point where they're chasing, they're chasing others, chasing other people out of the church, trying to chase people out of their positions in ministry. 
And David spent his life running away from his father-in-law because instead of Saul chasing God, he was chasing his name. Missed it. Completely missed it. But David had it. And David convinced a generation to go after it. And there was an entire generation that did see it. When we make full circle to this and go back to 2 Chronicles 7.1, when that foundation of sacrifice was laid, built through a people of peace, built with one thing in mind, let's go after God's glory, whatever it takes. Fire came down from heaven. Fire came down from heaven. And here's the exhortation for us. May we desire the glory of God to be known in this temple. There is so much yet to see. There is so much yet to experience. And we're not looking for some physical manifestation. We're not looking for lights and flashes. We're not looking for that. We're looking for something greater. For fire to burn in people's hearts. For Christ. For God to be so known and so realized that in this place, by His grace... And whatever local church you represent, by his grace, that as people come in, they would know God is in this house. And not just on a Friday or a Sunday, but whenever believers gather together as that spiritual house, whoever's outside of that or whoever's within that would say, God is truly, surely in this place. That's what we need to ask God for. That's what we need to believe God for. Because the days are too dark to play church. The days are too dark to not live sacrificially. The days are too dark to be a people of war. There's enough war and craziness outside of the church. We don't need to bring it in the church. The days are too dark to not say, oh God, whatever it takes, whatever I can give, whatever I need to lay down, whatever I need to partner with, whatever it takes to make your name known, let it be known. Let it be known. And that's our prayer. That's our desire. That's what we need from God more than anything. So that people are sitting in these chairs and perhaps even tonight, Addicted to drugs. Would know the glory of God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would be set free. For those that are addicted to lust. And in bondage to sin. And can't see themselves get out. That it would be the glory of God. Through the gospel of Christ. That would set people free. For those that are so wounded. And bruised. They would know something of the glory of God that would fill every void and bind everything. It's possible. It's possible in 2019 for the presence of the Holy Spirit to change lives in a way where we would stand in awe like they did outside of that temple and say, God is here. That's our desire. And we want Him to be glorified. And that's going to be the very thing that will keep a people staying on track in the center of God's will. That, will. that will make sacrifice a lot easier. That will make peace and seeking to be peacemakers a lot more desirable when we say that there's something greater in this life than me. There's something more amazing than my own plans. There's something more wonderful than my name, and that's the name of Jesus. And I want to do whatever it takes to exalt his name and make it known. But it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require peace. It's going to require an ambition above all other ambitions. Lord, let your glory fill this house. That's what we're desiring. Can we bow our heads and pray? Father, we thank you for the awesome truth about your temple being us.
and that we get to come together corporately and be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord, we can't force your Holy Spirit to do anything. We cannot manipulate him to perform any task. But what we choose to do in this moment is humble ourselves. Say, God, first cleanse us from all unrighteousness and wash us from all selfish ambition. And Lord, make it the prime desire of our lives that through us individually, yes, but even the different local bodies that are represented here to host the presence of God and for people to know that you are a living God when we come together. And Lord, that might not look like fire, but it would look like supernatural love. That might not look like sacrifices being consumed from something coming out of heaven, but it looks like serving one another sacrificially. It might not look like a voice resounding from the heavens or from a mountain in Sinai, but Lord, it looks like your word being cracked open for the Holy Spirit breathing on those verses into our hearts. And so, Lord, we come because we are hungry. We are yearning. And, Lord, even as we celebrate what you have done in this local place this weekend, what you've done with people throughout the years, we say thank you. And, Lord, we say we want more of your glory. So much more, Lord. We are we're full, but we're not satisfied. We're so full because you fill our hearts. But Lord, we're not satisfied because we know that there's so much more. And we pray that, God, you would be pleased to be in the midst. That you would be delighted. Lord, may we be a people of peace. Laying down our pride. Laying down our own interests for the interest of Christ to be preeminent. And to be first. May we not see that as some dragging task. May we see that as the, the reason to live and the joy of life to be fully known in that place alone. In that place alone. And so Lord, as we even sing this song, we sing it as a prayer, as your temple, as your house. And we trust, Lord, that you will answer this in the days, weeks, months ahead. We trust that you'll answer it to every local church that is represented here every ministry that is represented here would know the glory of God. 